0: Hi, I'm Dr. Mitch Harlan, and welcome to the Truth Talks podcast. Today, I'm joined by an amazing guest, but before I introduce them to you, I want to ask that you please like and subscribe below. That way, we can continue to bring you these incredible stories. And if you're already liked and subscribed to our channel, we thank you for all of your support. Today's episode is really, really, really a fun one. This is David Rogers that we're here with today. David, how are you? I'm great, thank you. Thank you for having me. Oh, this is, this is incredible. You, this is the epitome of why we do truth talks. And, <laughs> we'll, and, and we'll this, actually, this actually just started.
1: <clears throat> That's right. Just start will be an important uh, phrase in the context of this talk.
0: I think <laughs> It is going to be the key phrase. I think it, it could be uh, for sure. Here's what happened. Uh, you and I met the very first time I was lecturing and you were with a uh, production company. 408 productions. 408 productions. We're yes, going to key them in. You betcha. Yeah. And, uh, I'm up on stage. I end up doing a, a spiel. It was a leadership, uh, development day, uh, talk that we did. I came in and I told some stories, uh, of different people that we've actually done on the podcast. We have thousands of other stories, but I kind of chose a few. Uh, I didn't have a whole lot of prep time, uh, <laughs> uh to do the show, but that's that's what we kind of, you know, we, we, we relish in around here is chaos. But I walk off that stage, and I come over, and I meet you for the first time. Right. And it's weird. <clears throat> I've learned to accept it. But I'm like, ooh, there's something just real nice about that guy. When I came off stage, I don't know if you remember. I do. But you said? Well, I, I congratulated you on your talk, told you what a powerful
1: message you had. You spoke on the topic of integrity, and you used some examples of some Navy SEALs and people in the military that have served our country and talked about their uh, participation, their hardship, the consequences, the lessons learned, and uh, like you, I just felt kind of a bond almost instantly, uh, partly because of your style on stage, your command of the audience, uh, but more importantly, the message that you were sharing. It's powerful.
0: And and, And I appreciate that because you always want it to be powerful when you do something, but it was there was something there, and I, I didn't know what it was. Um, I knew that producer Chad had known you guys and was doing some work with you as well, and he's always a good kind of litmus test for me. If he likes somebody, I know I'm probably going to like them as well. And and so I give you a call. As a matter of fact, it's almost kind of a weird thing because we didn't have the right number. You were trying to get a hold of me, I guess, and I didn't know. <laughs> you weren't returning my text messages, <laughs> and I was thinking,
1: uh, what's up? A guy not that interested in chatting with me, but
0: <laughs> we eventually got it together. Which is... Again, kind of the lesson in the story, right? It was a wrong number. Hmm. I, not only did I enjoy when I got the actual email, I'm like, all right, right on. I really like this guy, right? But there's already a story being made that ah, maybe this guy really doesn't want to chat. Yeah, more like maybe persistence is really important. And if you don't get it right the first time, just keep going, keep trying <laughs> Another again. Another <laughs> lesson, right? So we have this meeting, and I loved it. It was a great meeting. It wasn't abnormal for many meetings that I have. Right. and until the camera went off, until until the actual meeting was done, right. then you and I spent, what, close to two hours, I think, <laughs> it, continuing the conversation. Indeed we did, and it was pretty darn powerful,
1: I have to say, and uh, unexpected to me because you drew some topics and some uh, information out of me that I don't readily share, and uh, it got pretty intense and pretty emotional, and uh, I have
0: been reflecting upon it since that day well good because we're going to put it all on on camera here on tape here for the world to see and i know that's tough but i also know how tough you are and uh, i learned that in two hours right and that discussion that we had which we're going to to kind of go through today is exactly the essence of why we do truth talks um there's going to be a whole lot of people that are going to get a whole lot of information here that can be applied in almost all aspects of life I knew you felt and shared in the same thing that we do here on Truth Talks. I could feel the passion, all the stuff that you've done in your career. But we're going to talk about the mountain. Let's talk about our conversation that we had that I absolutely was adamant to get on tape here. We started talking about this trip that you took. Right.
1: So the the nature of the trip was uh, I was turning 50, and I thought it would be um, exciting to try to do something fairly epic for my 50th birthday. And uh, the context was uh, the sport of cycling, which is something I've been a very uh, mid-level amateur participant in (laughs) for many years and remain so today. We're talking about decades. And um, I was trying to dream up what the most difficult thing was that I could think to do or attempt to do on a bicycle. And uh, so the idea that eventually uh, showed up in in my mind, was to try to ride the Tour de France from beginning to end, all 21 stages, starting uh, four days ahead of the actual race and finishing four days ahead of the race, um, doing it solo uh, with a camper van for my mobile hotel room and uh, source of food and dry clothing. And that was
0: uh, the gist of the idea. and, And I don't know much about cycling other than I know that the Tour de France... <clears throat> is like climbing Mount Everest is like the hardest thing ever. So I, I was kind of getting on to that. I'm like, okay, well, this guy's really want to do something like way above Epic, right? right? Which then starts to set off alarms with me. Right. You asked an important question uh, on the heels of my disclosure of what that ride was about. And we're going to talk about that because I think it is the most important part or at least one of the most important parts of the story. So let's start with how all that journey began. And then let's talk about the ride. Yeah. Well, uh, at the time I was living in Omaha,
1: Nebraska, which is uh, not known for its high-altitude alpine
0: climbs.
1: (laughs) So my training was uh, into the headwinds on rolling hills and came out to Colorado a couple of times to ride at altitude and try to acquaint with that. But uh, the gist of it is uh, leased a motorhome from a place in Nice, France. Uh, Flew across the pond with my um, driving partner. And uh, the journey began in the harbor of Monaco uh, and got off to a rather auspicious beginning on
0: day one. Which I, l- let's just keep going because th- <laughs> this is perfect. Start to finish.
1: All right. Well, the 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 opening stage of the Tour de France is typically called the prologue and it's a shorter, uh, typically individual time trial. And it's just sort of the way to kind of kick the event off. And Monaco is obviously a very unique and prestigious community. And so uh, we stayed overnight uh, in the motorhome in the harbor illegally, Uh, got up in the morning to warm up for the opening uh, prologue stage, which was about a 20 kilometer uh, ride. And uh, it was very misty. And the front wheel of my bike uh, dropped into a a storm drain and uh it popped me up in the air and i came down uh hard on the handlebars and uh broke a rib and in fact it was displaced and kind of sticking protruding out from my jersey and um i hadn't even started the 2300 mile <laughs> ride that i was supposed to be doing over the next three weeks and uh here i was with a fairly painful injury yeah like ribs are one of the worst they're yeah i've broken a lot of them and uh and we'll talk about a friend of mine who's uh, suffering with that situation right now. Uh, I'm sure at some point here, but uh, yeah, they're they're uncomfortable. It's not easy to do much of anything, and probably riding a bike up and down <laughs> mountains is not a good idea.
0: Tell them what you did.
1: Uh, I've been in healthcare for a long time, and what I just knew is that you know my the two ends of the rib were <laughs> displaced; they weren't uh, talking to each other, and uh, I thought it might be something that I could more or less kind of snap it back in place. So. Um I got off the ground I realized what was going on I I took a deep breath I put my hands against my uh, rib cage and I pressed in hard and
0: it kind of went click and that was that You were you were you were like okay I think it's where we want to tell all of our listeners to not do that Yeah it's probably not a good idea It's not the best of Something all Something called ideas. a pneumothorax
1: <laughs> that you would probably not like to inflict upon it's yourself It's a bad day
0: I've had a few of those too <laughs> So you pop this in, <laughs> in, you're content. Yeah. Then the journey starts.
1: Yeah, the journey started, and uh, you know the the opening ride was difficult, and then the next day, uh, the first uh, real stage of the tour was across southern France, uh, along the Mediterranean, and uh, we had a little uh, little mishap on day day two, if you will, of the tour that uh, had the potential of derailing it, but um, we put. Uh, mind over matter, and, and uh, continued the journey. It was a little accident with the motorhome, uh, caused some challenges for the driver. And so for a few days, I had to ride and drive. Uh, but the goal was to make sure that I checked all the boxes because uh, you, you couldn't finish the journey if you didn't do the work. And that meant riding each day from start to finish.
0: But there was a, there was a situation where you would drive the motorhome. Right ride back
1: to the end of the stage, ride back on my bike to the beginning of the stage and then ride back to the end of the stage.
0: You're doing it twice. Yeah, for a
1: few days and you know those days turned into, you know, 250 to almost 300 mile days and I was well aware that that wasn't sustainable for the whole trip, but it, what was it's what was necessary at the time and I couldn't afford to sort of sit and wait for Things to straighten out because the actual race was going to be coming on my heels, and I knew that if they overtook me, then my opportunity was going to be over. Because you know the tour is a, a massive event with you know cars and traffic and spectators, and I needed to stay ahead of the fray in order to have a chance. To, yeah, they
0: don't care what journey you're on. They don't give a you know, <laughs> what shit. journey I'm on. <laughs> exactly. Shit, what journey you're on. That's right. So you went up there drove the motor home up so far, rode back, and then come back to finish it, just so in your mind you had literally done the entire race. Right. That is huge.
1: Well, I think what's more huge uh, really as I've reflected upon that part of the experience is that when you decide to take on something like climbing Everest, this was my version of that. I'm afraid of heights, so I couldn't <laughs> climb Everest. Um, you're undoubtedly going to be dependent on other people. And most of these things just can't be done all on your lonesome, right? And so there's a selfish aspect of pursuing something like this because, in a way, it's all about you, and yet you still need other people. And they have jobs and expectations, and they have their own fears and frailties. And if one breaks, you know, the whole thing has the potential to break. And um, so I just think uh, what I learned is that in. in Taking on something like this and thinking about it so much internally and what it means to you, you really need to spend some time thinking about what you're asking of others and the burden that that they're expected to carry on your behalf. And that's, uh, I underestimated for sure in the planning how big that burden was going to be and uh, the position I was putting my support
0: people in. Well, I think as we go on, it'll really reveal itself. So you flew in a buddy. Yep to help drive.
1: Yeah, I have a friend that uh, I've known for 30 years uh, in Wisconsin, where's my home state where we met, and uh, he has dual citizenship in Spain, and I called him up to explain the dilemma. He's also a former cyclist, uh, very uh, astute about European cycling and really a student of the game, and um, it just so happened that he was flying to Spain, and the route went across southern France that year and into Spain. And so he literally met us in one of the finishing towns and had seven days where he could uh, drive the motor home uh, while I continued my journey. And then he had to go on to his uh, next level of next responsibilities, and we tried to figure out what was gonna happen next because there was still gonna be 10 more days of driving France into Switzerland, down into Italy, Uh, back into france you know those there was a lot of uh, territory yet to cover and uh he has a friend lives in nova scotia and we called him and flew him from nova scotia to france to pick up the driving duties for the last 10 days so
0: why why do you think somebody would do that for you uh
1: wow that's a great question I, i think uh when you come across a person in your life who you see has aspirational goals, um, maybe they're doing something that you've done and you'd love to see them experience it. Maybe they're doing something that you've dreamed of, but uh, or uh, but but never maybe have the courage to try. Maybe they're living vicariously through you. Maybe they're just a friend and they want to help you um, experience something that's uh, unusual and life-changing. Um,
0: which is just amazing, right? When you have people like that in your life, it's just amazing.
1: Yeah. And and the th- I think the thing is when you experience people like that, that give to you, it gives you the perspective of how impactful you can be in someone else's life to do the same. You know, people talk about that as paying it forward. And, um, I think the important thing is just to have your <clears throat> eyes open and, and, this level of self-awareness that I think sometimes people don't have to see the opportunities because they're all around us. We all have friends and acquaintances and colleagues who may need us to be on their team to help them experience uh, the potential or the dream that they have in life. And uh, when it's been gifted to you, uh, maybe you're more inclined to want to gift it to someone else.
0: So where did you go after that? So he came and did the next... X amount of days.
1: Yeah, so just continued to march uh, my way through the stages, and uh, you know it was nice to only have to ride one <laughs> <long time. laughs> one length per day. Uh, you know, on average, the days are uh, probably about 110 to 120 miles, with days of greater and lesser. But you know, for the the average cyclist, it would be sort of like thinking about going out and doing a century ride, mostly at altitude, and doing it every day for 21 days in a row. There are two rest days uh, that are inserted in the event. And uh, on one of those days, uh, we mistakenly put uh, gasoline in the diesel powered motorhome. It ended up uh, having to be towed into a shop and the engine basically drained and uh, almost rebuilt. Um, that caused the loss of a day and that resulted then in doing five stages in four days to make up for lost time but uh, that was just one more hiccup along the way (laughs) and then
0: not to mention hypothermia
1: yeah hypothermia was kind of the the coup de grace of the event there was a a stage in Switzerland in the Swiss Alps and uh, it climbed the high point of the tour that year called the Col de Grand Saint Bernard and that was followed by a lesser climb called the Col de Petit St. Bernard. Um, The Grand St. Bernard is I think the second or third highest Elperian climb in Switzerland and the Petite St. Bernard is a little bit lower, about 8,200 feet and about 7,400 feet I believe. And um, the climbs in Europe are not necessarily always as high as what we experience here in the Rockies. But they're oftentimes more difficult in terms of the gradient, and they start from lower altitudes. So, the duration of the climb is just as difficult. You just don't end up at quite the same altitude at the summit. Um, That day was going well. The the Grand Saint Bernard uh, went well. There was a descent down into a, a valley. The temperature in the valley floor was about 75 degrees and sunny and beautiful. And uh, I rode through that just wearing a short sleeve jersey and a pair of bibs. And uh, was uh, the, the finish of the stage was at the top of the Petite St. Bernard. So I started up the climb thinking that my vehicle was ahead of me on the climb. And that was typically the plan, to have them be up the climb. So if I got in trouble or didn't show up or the weather turned bad, that they could come down and you know, save me, you. save me or hand me clothes or whatever it was. But uh, they, they were parked in the valley. They were having some coffee or tea or something at a restaurant. And I rode through and then started up the climb. And uh, the 75 degree sunshine turned into a mist. <clears throat> and then it turned into really powerful, you know, 35, 40 mile an hour winds, which turned into sleet and hail. And uh, all I knew was to keep going up trying to generate body heat and hoping that my vehicle was going to come down and find me. Uh, They couldn't come down because they were behind me and they didn't know that I was in front of them. And so at the top of the summit, um, I was so hypothermic, I I could barely pedal and I thought, well, I'll I'll go over the top and sort of see what's on the other side because there was nobody at the summit. There was a parking lot, kind of a concrete outbuilding and some kind of closed restaurant and it was literally blizzarding cold as, and I was soaking wet and completely uh, almost incapacitated. I went down the other side for about two kilometers, came to a sign that said Italy and I thought well that seemed like a bad idea to keep <laughs> going to another country. I think I'll go back to the top. I got to the top and huddled behind this hut for about a half hour and um, it was a weird situation. Uh, hypothermia is scary. Um, it kind of creeps up on you. And I had a, a satellite phone in my seat bag and a laminated card with the phone numbers so that I could call you know, my support. And I was looking at the numbers on the laminated card, and I was holding the phone in the other hand, and I couldn't, in my mind, figure out how to dial the numbers yeah. to make the call. And uh, by the time they got there, they, they literally had to carry me to the car, uh, strip my clothes off, wrap me in blankets, make me hot soup, and I, I literally shivered for three hours. It was, I've never experienced, I've been cold a lot, but not that cold, and it's not a good idea.
0: And there was conversation of shutting it down.
1: Yeah, there was conversation of shutting it down for sure. It happened the next morning. Um, I woke up at uh, 7.30 or 8 o'clock. It was 38 degrees and pouring rain. We were in a valley at a, at a campground close to the start of the next stage. And um, I, uh, <laughs> I I was swollen and uh, just really beat up from the experience of the day before. And um, I got up and with an umbrella walked to the, the bathroom in this campground. And in Europe, the the... Bathroom facilities are a little different than they are in the United States. And so I, not to be too graphic, but I was sitting on this cold porcelain potty, uh, the rain pounding on the metal roof of this outhouse, basically. And I was trying to figure out what the heck I was going to do. The conditions were not something anybody would go ride a bike in, to be honest with you. And the stage was the most difficult stage of the tour that year. It had five Category one climbs which are just below the the highest or most difficult type of climb that they rate and um, It was about a hundred and thirty miles of just up and over and up and over five mountain passes that were really difficult and the weather was shit uh, to <laughs> yes. say it correctly and um, Yeah, so I, I had an epiphany uh, sitting on the porcelain and uh <laughs> that's a story that you know we need to talk about for a minute and uh it resulted in me getting on my bike that morning and starting that ride
0: well here's here's what <clears throat> here's what not only truth talks is but about all the interviews that i've done when when man is by himself right that's when all of the world's reality comes to you right yeah. and here's what I here's what I know I, i'm I'm not a cyclist but I always get interested in somebody doing something epic and and it's a fun conversation at this point we were still having fun yeah we we're just talking about cycling yeah yeah but then I had to pull out what I know and I said wait a minute you know i I know people do epic shit all the time right
1: yeah I, living in Colorado i I don't want this to sound all that spectacular there's plenty of pros that live here that have actually done this race i'm just a an amateur out there pedaling my bike you know
0: which then led me to the conclusion i think there's something more this guy's riding for yeah yeah and i asked a question yeah i don't know if i'm buying this 50 year old epic tour man i said i think i need the real story yeah and that's when the next two hours ensued that's that's correct mind sharing that
1: uh (laughs) I guess that's why you invited me on the show, right, (laughs) to tell that story. Kind of is. um, We could end
0: it here, but it wouldn't be near as epic.
1: There's there's kind of two stories in one at this point that sort of converge. And um, uh, one question you asked me was, why did you really do this? (laughs) And so that's one story. And the other uh, story is... How did I, for the life of me, get off that potty and go back to the motorhome and put on my clothes and start riding my bike in those conditions? So I, I guess I probably need to answer both of those, right? Yeah. Which one do you want first? Let's
0: <laughs> give the... Why were you on that road, man?
1: Uh, you know, I I have to be honest with you. Um, nobody until you asked me that question has ever asked me that question. And I have never tried in my mind to answer that question authentically so uh, (laughs) that was a pretty uh, astute question on your part and um, caused me to take a pretty deep dive in that moment and for the last couple of days since i thought about it and um i think when you uh um I think sometimes the things we try to achieve in our lives are oftentimes based on the validation that we hope comes with it. And that validation that we're seeking oftentimes is not internal, it's external. We want people to be proud of us. We want our identity to be linked to the achievement we want a pat on the back. And we want someone to say good job. And um, so jokingly, everybody talks about having mommy and daddy issues. <laughs> <laughs> I probably had some daddy issues. I had an amazing father who um, grew up in a generation where men you know, were, were more stoic, less um, able or equipped to share emotion. Um, he was a World War II veteran. Um, highly decorated for pulling wounded soldiers half blown apart out of battle. So he'd seen some pretty uh, devastating situations in his life. And I think uh, that and just his upbringing made it hard for him to be warm and fuzzy. And um, I spent a lot of my life attempting to do things that would get his attention. Yeah. I wanted that pat on the back, whether it was through academics or athletics or relationships or professional achievements or whatever it was, I was hoping my, my dad would step up and give me that hug or that handshake. And uh, this ride happened 10 years after he had passed away. And uh, I think I was still being, I was still in pursuit of his um, acknowledgments. So dreaming up the most difficult thing I could think of to do was just the natural progression of trying to find a way to get noticed. And um, so did that play a part consciously or subconsciously in why I was there? Um, I think your question hit
0: home. There's no doubt. Um yeah. Epic things are usually there for other epic things. Rarely is there one epic event. Uh it's usually one looking for another. Yeah. It's kind the, of what they kinda of link together. They, they, they always link together. And you know what was so interesting about this story to me was when we when we were having this discussion mm-hmm. and we were talking. I mean, shit, both of us are sitting there, two grown men crying on a damn Zoom call, right? Right. And uh I'm thinking, okay, what, what are all the lessons in this? You know, there was a relationship issue going on. Right. Um, how many of us have actually been on that mountain? We've all been on that mountain, right? Absolutely. We just didn't make it an epic trip over the Tour de France, right? But for every single person in life is going through whatever it is, it's almost like, you know, you, you will do these epic things to to prove to somebody that it is, when in fact I think that is our truly our way of proving it to ourselves. But it was... It was so emotional, but what what did you come out with?
1: yeah, I came out with a couple of uh <clears throat> powerful things for me um, when I got back from that trip and we'll we'll go back to that moment in the bathroom in a minute because that's super important and it has to yes. do with my daughter, and I want to tell that, but I came back from that trip, and one of the things i I did was write kind of a personal mission statement I wanted to I really wanted to figure out wh- what propelled me like what was at the heart of why I do what I do or why I try to do what I try to do, and uh one of the sentences in there um, uh is that I'm done suffering to prove that I can and <clears throat> it really kind of is a reminder to myself that when the when the drive for achievement is intended for somebody else's uh spectatorship if you will and it's not really coming from within for the right reasons uh there's no point in that there's no uh, there's no fulfillment in that and and how that manifests for me is i've been bike racing at that point already for 20 plus years um, at My amateur status, again, uh, you got to keep in mind (laughs) here that I'm not a professional cyclist or anything close to it. But, you know, won plenty of bike races. And my emotional response to those victories was never about enjoying the moment. I never, you know, marinated or patted myself on the back. All I thought about was what's the next race, what's my next opportunity to succeed, to win, to prove a point, whatever it might be. And the year of preparation for the tour, I didn't. I didn't race because I didn't want to risk injury, and so my first race happened in when I moved to Colorado. Then in 2010, and um, I was scared to death. I'd, I hadn't raced here. I had a new team. Uh, I had had a big injury the prior fall after I got back from the tour with a bunch of fractures and prolonged recovery, and I had two great teammates. Um, I mentioned their name, Glenn McCoy and Dan Berger, who really, you know, held my hand through that race and encouraged me and asked me to slow down at certain points and asked me to save energy and asked me to get on their wheel on climbs. And they just talked me through the race. And uh, as it turned out, I, I won that race. And uh, I, I got to the finish line or went past the finish line and, and uh, they came up to me and uh, I kind of lost my emotional composure, so we say. Yeah. And I realized that that was the first time uh, that I had ever uh, taken a moment to enjoy a victory, to really be in the moment, not thinking about what comes next, but appreciating what is right now. And I think a lot of us, uh, we're so driven, you know, we're we're driven to provide, we're driven to achieve, we're driven for a title, we're driven for a victory, and we sort of miss the moments that are occurring throughout our life, missing the opportunity to celebrate, share, find joy.
0: I think this is incredibly important because we... When we started our conversation, it was about this mission and this idea of how could we, how do we turn these things into these ultimate life lessons so people don't have to suffer, right? Right. What if our stories can keep people from suffering? And you know what's funny is there's another side of that story because I talked about my father, yeah. and uh, you know I, I I can't for the life of me even think of one instance where. He, he, didn't, he wasn't perfect in my eyes. He did everything. He, he would always pat me on the back. He would always do right. these things. I think we have to learn from both ends of the spectrum, right? And the realization that I loved that you came up with after we had talked was that you just saw him differently. It yeah. wasn't an issue. It was just how you saw it.
1: Yeah. And, and also, uh, to add to that, to appreciate the, the gifts that you receive that at the time might not seem as gifts. How, you, how do you reframe and respin something to find
0: the good in it? That, that is, again, exactly what we do here on True Talks is we love to share these types of stories, and we have one more caveat coming up, but let's go now, let's circle back to the porcelain in the middle of the rain <laughs> and your daughter.
1: Yeah, yeah, my daughter Liz, <clears throat> amazing uh, young woman and a, a new mom, by the way, uh, with her 10-month-old daughter, Kenna, my granddaughter. Uh, So exciting. But um, yeah, I had these long conversations with Liz leading up to this ride, uh, trying to sort out in my head what was success and what was failure. And for some reason, uh, it was really important for me to have a clear understanding of those two definitions. And, uh, you know, this undertaking had a certain amount of unpredictability and a lot of variables that I didn't necessarily have control over. I didn't have control over the weather or the traffic or the body, you know, failing potentially, or the bike breaking, or God knows any number of things that could have sort of derailed. So I was trying to take all that into account. I was driven to get to the finish line. I needed to figure out what the definition was. And uh we sort of centered on the idea that it wasn't about the things that I couldn't control, it was about one thing that I could control and that was that every day that I would get on the bike and just start and those two words you know have become pretty profound in my life and and um, you know I probably shared it as wisdom or insight to a a person or two who's, um, confronted with a challenge in life that they think is insurmountable, or maybe a failure in life that they think that they can't come back from. And in my mind, I felt that if each day I could just start, that once, it's almost like a physics, you know, you know, a body in motion is more likely to stay in motion, right? Right. I just felt that if I got on my bike each day, no matter what had happened the day before and just started pedaling, that somehow I'd figure out a way to get to the end. The the failure would be to not start. So that morning in the 38 degree rain, when I got back to the motor home and my two drivers at that point said, so what are we gonna do this morning? You wanna grab breakfast? And you know, let's take, you know, obviously can't ride, let's take the day off. and. I was just very stoic, and I remember walking kind of past them through the door of the motorhome and going to a cabinet and started pulling out every piece of warm, foul-weather clothing that I had with me. And they looked at me like, what are you doing? And I said, I'm getting ready to ride my bike. I'm like, you can't ride your bike, man. Look at yourself, you look like shit. Your the weather is, when you get up higher, it's gonna be snowing. Uh, you can't ride in this. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, I actually can, and I'm I'm going to be leaving in about 30 minutes, so you, it'd be nice for me today if you could be ahead of me <laughs> on the mountain instead of behind me, just in case you know bad stuff happens. And so I I just started, and uh, as I mentioned, it was the most difficult stage that year, and <clears throat> I have to tell you that I had the most spectacular day of riding I've ever had. Not really sure where that came from. There's an expression in cycling call it a a no chain day. It feels like your effort is um, wind aided <laughs> in both it. directions. you know you just feel like you have unlimited power and unlimited stamina and, and speed and just everything's just flowing like you don't even have resistance on your chain and despite the course of, that was that was that kind of day and uh When I got to the end of that day the uh the uh, f- the feeling was um, you know I've broken the rib, I've had hypothermia, I've ridden in this shit, and now I know that nothing is going to stop me it was uh There was still a lot to go, but I just felt like okay if i haven't if i haven't quit yet, it's not happening and um so the magic is really pushing your envelope to those uncomfortable places and spaces where it doesn't feel good, and then all of a sudden it does.
0: It feels um, real good. Yeah. And it was almost when we were talking, too, it was that moment. Had you not got on that bike that day, it might have changed everything.
1: Yeah, I, a lot of things. I would have, I would have felt that I failed because that was... The definition was getting on my bike that was the difference between success and failure Um, I would have um, I would have felt that my character um, took a hit you know when there was an opportunity to um, find inner strength and um, build my core so to speak that I that I would have missed an opportunity um, I probably would have felt like I let people down because at that point I was still doing this more for others than maybe for myself. Um, we might not be having this talk.
0: Yeah. There was such an internal dialogue I know that you had going on that we talked about, and you know I think it's kind of a interesting time that that we bring this up. You know whether. This has something to do with a relationship that you're trying to, to figure out. Uh, maybe it's you've got extra weight on you and you want to you get it off. Um, you know, we've done podcasts with uh, what you would consider just an absolute warrior, right? And he had these same things. He was always trying to prove to his dad he was good enough. Yeah. And... Um, you know we, we think this happens to the weak we think it doesn't happen to us when we get old and gray it's like no you don't think about stuff like that no we do yeah this is human nature this is the human condition Absolutely. and this is why we do this and we had that connection when we started talking and and i i, I didn't really give you an option i said i'll see you i'll <laughs> see you sunday because the world needs to hear this story and there's this whole incredible Movement and time, and literally, you know, two grown men sitting there, you know, balling like little sissies on on a on a thing. But when it impacts you that much, and it, and and you can move the needle on somebody, because there's millions and millions of people out there right now that are going to hear this story, and they're going to relate with it, yeah. Because everything in our lives is that mountain, yeah. And the fact that there was a a term just start, yeah. The
1: mountain is. That mountain was a metaphor for life, right? Right. Just start, however, is, um, it's it's so much more. Like to me, I I think about that literally every day. Um, I want to tell a brief sidebar of a friend of mine Mm -hmm. who I'm trying to help just start. And, uh, you know, the thing about life is, as I said before, if you just have your eyes open and, and you have a, a good and open heart, you have so many opportunities to, to pour it out, you know, to somebody that might need it. And, uh, you know, being able to make a difference in the world, in an individual, you know, in your life experiences, uh, that's an opportunity you shouldn't, shouldn't skip. So I have a friend um, his name is Caleb. He lives in Boulder, Colorado, and um, he is also a cyclist and um, I got him involved in the sport uh, about six years ago and uh, I find out he's he's a very talented athlete, but he's never ridden a bicycle literally and I'm like dude i i'd like to I'd like to find out what you got on a bike. Come over to my house I'm going to fit you on one of my bikes I'm going to send you out on the road just ride it if you." we see something special, which I kind of suspected we might, you know, I'll sell you one and, and start your riding. To make a long story short, he bought three bikes. He uh, He became the region's number one ultra distance rider doing these crazy epic two, three hundred mile rides with 20 or 30,000 feet of climbing. I was in Aspen one day a few years ago and I was on a bike ride and all of a sudden he came whizzing past me going in the other direction wearing black ski goggles and it was July it was like 90 degrees and I thought it was him and then I thought nah I can't be Caleb and uh called him the next day I said Caleb isn't there a chance you were riding your bike in Aspen he goes yeah yeah I was there yesterday I'm like dude you what were you were you wearing black ski goggles in like 90 degree weather he goes yeah he said it was really shit over Loveland Pass like, hailing and raining, and I was riding in a parka. I'm like, come again? Like, where? how did you get there? He said, well, it was a race. I said, well, where did it start? In Denver. Where did it finish? In Aspen. We went over, you know, past Echo Lake on Mount Evans, and then we went up Loveland Pass, and we went up Swan Mountain, and we went over Vail Pass, and blah, blah, blah. You know, like, ridiculous, right? And he... He started at like 4.30 or 5 in the morning and was finishing when I saw him at like 6 o'clock in the afternoon been riding through all that shit and beat everybody by like two hours. So (laughs) I said to him at that point, like, dude, we got to get you a license and actually have you race your bike against like real bike racers. I'd like to see what happens. So he enters the Frostbite Time Trial in Boulder four years ago, buys a one-day license as a beginning rider, would have finished 4th in the professional field that day. and It's sort of like other people you just discover they got some motor under the hood that you just never knew was there. Well, Caleb had, has continued to ascend in the sport. He's 31 now, uh, just an incredibly gifted athlete. And um, Three weeks ago, uh, I was riding out at Carter Lake north of Boulder with a friend of mine, telling him about Caleb and what he was achieving as a cyclist. An ambulance went whizzing past us about a mile from the base of this descent at Carter Lake, and I said, God, I hope somebody didn't crash on that descent, it's a 50 mile an hour downhill. And um, we get to the base, there's nobody there, we go up this descent, and uh, I get a phone call that night, and it's Caleb, and he's in the hospital in Loveland, And he crashed on that descent that day while I was talking about him, while the ambulance went by with him in it. And uh, riding a bike that I sold him, got a front-wheel puncture, and suffered some incredible injuries that uh, he is working hard to recover from. And and one day will return to ride his bike again, I'm sure. And um, so... We've been spending a lot of time talking about our life's experiences and talking about when devastating moments like that happen how do they how do they change you how do they change your perspective how do they give you an opportunity to give and receive in a different way how do they pull the fight out of you and and inspire you to to climb out of the hole that you're in and You know he's not a quitter and he won't quit and he'll come back to be his best self plus because he'll now have some tools to give to other people that he didn't have before that accident. So you know I I think the point of that is when you face hardship and you face adversity and you get your ass handed to you, you can quit, you can give up, you can turn sour or you can use that in ways to help other people get through similar difficulties. And they show up, as you said, in all facets of life. It's not it's not about the bike, <laughs> as Lance once wrote. It is really about life. And uh, that's, again, it's, it's a metaphor for the world we live in.
0: And, and there's a little bit of him that's, that's going through some stuff right now, and the message would be, just start.
1: Yeah, absolutely. We've, we've discussed that. He is, uh, two days ago, I was out on a ride. I filmed a little video while I was riding down the shoulder of the road north of Longmont. I send him inspirational photos and videos every couple of days just to keep him tuned in. And 30 minutes later, he sends me a video back. He's on a recumbent bicycle hooked up to an indoor trainer in his living room, and he's racing on Zwift pedaling with one leg. Yeah. Pedaling with one leg. His other legs, you know, can't move it because one of the things he has is a, is a severely broken hip. And so one leg sitting on a stool and he's cranking away at 170 watts with one leg racing on a virtual, you know, uh, an app called Zwift that uh, most riders know about. And anyway, uh, he's that kind of guy. You know, he's going to come back and and, uh, he's going to have something to offer from his adversity uh, and he'll give it to somebody else.
0: And more. Yeah. So I can't end this unless I end it like this. Two grown men, we get all emotional talking to one another, but what, what'd you take away?
1: What did I take away from this conversation? Yeah. Uh, I felt very vulnerable. You can't have me lose it now. (laughs) i been doing a pretty good job. It's good for ratings. Keep my shit together. Uh, I felt very vulnerable coming here, you know, to share this this story and um, insights and perspectives. Um, it, uh, It takes some level of courage to be real. to try to be honest and authentic, you know, to choose some buzzwords. But I think uh, the reason I'm having this conversation with you is uh, because you convinced me that my story might be helpful to someone else. And uh, I'm not motivated in this conversation to... (laughs) To talk about me, um, again, uh, I or my story is uh, potentially a vehicle to uh, give someone else who might have been facing their own adversity to to just start and to put uh, one foot in front of the other each day to create some momentum um, to recognize that the others <laughs> The other side of the climb that they're on is uh, followed by a downhill. And uh, in baseball, you can't get on base if you don't bat, right? Yeah. In life, you can't succeed if you don't try. Um, if you quit, you give up the opportunity. Uh, and, and by just starting, you give yourself every
0: opportunity. Just starting. God, it's great. You know, I think um, one of the things I always think about when I have these types of conversations is, you know, I listen to a man or a woman or whoever it may be, um, and you get this kind of overwhelming feeling or sensation like they don't feel good enough. They don't feel something, right? Right. And after our conversation, I'm sitting there thinking, man, this is one of my favorite people on the planet. I just met the guy. (laughs) And it wasn't even supposed to be about a story. We were talking business. Right. And 24 hours later, I'm like, wow, this is like a hugely influential guy in my life, right? It's weird. It's weird to me sometimes that people don't recognize that. And to, that, to a lot of people out there who don't feel like they're good enough, they're incredibly great to someone or maybe a lot of someone. Yeah. But you just got to start. Yeah. David, I tell you what, I appreciate you coming on this show, being vulnerable. <laughs> we both did good. We were disasters. If they would have saw us when we were talking about this before, it was a disastrous. That was my
1: greatest fear. I had a friend give me a give me a tip on trying to keep my uh, my emotions intact, and I'm grateful to her for sharing that. And uh, well, now you got to share. It. She uh, talked about
0: feeling your toes, uh, clench your butt cheeks whenever it starts <laughs> to get hot. You know, she talked about uh, how
1: emotion is your feeling in the moment the story is a conversation about the experience and the emotion isn't today it was that day and the message that can be helpful to other people needs to be communicated clearly to be effective and you if you lose yourself in the emotion you lose some of the potential that you have to give
0: I can kind of get on board with that, but the reason I loved you is because you were a bawling baby, <laughs> and uh, so I guess it just depends on who's listening. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah well, uh,
1: it helped me get through the conversation. Yeah, it did. It helped yeah. you get through.
0: Uh, you know what? I know we're all going to end up working together because yeah. you're you're my kind of people, and this is uh, this is why we did what we did. This is why we've sacrificed what we've sacrificed, and you know, it's. Um, I hope someone. Well, I mean, everybody needs to watch this segment. This is just one that it's it's a feel good segment. But you've done extremely well. Uh, We're proud of you, man. And we just know there's nothing but better things ahead. Thank you, man. Thanks for coming on. It's
1: been my my pleasure for sure.